When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ready. Play. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are tuning in from, from whichever part of the world you are. Uh, I'm really pleased to be having this show on Emma Raducanu today, and I'm really pleased to introduce to you journalist and author uh, Mike Dixon. Uh, Mike, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you, John. Very cold. It's absolutely freezing in London here. Yeah, I find that I'm in Bonn near Cologne. And to be honest with you, whenever the weather is cold here, it tends to be cold in London. We're at a fairly similar level and we're not that far away. Mike, it's been a... Listen, we're going to talk about Raducanu for the next 20 minutes or so. But just before, there has been some news today. Um, Boris Becker has been released from a prison in London and uh, we're not quite sure where he's going to pop up next. I believe he's going to be deported to Germany. Will Do we know if he's going to be going into prison in Germany or what the situation is? Uh, no, I don't believe so. No, I think he's uh, he's been released from uh, jail in the UK uh, under a sort of fast-track scheme, I guess, of people who, who are no danger to the public, um, which, which I don't think he is. Um, but I think as a condition of that, he has to go back to his uh, the, the country of his citizenship, which is uh, Germany. Um, and the, the suggestion is, I think, that he was flying to Stuttgart, I believe. Oh, OK. Well, there's been a lot of I mean, I, I guess there'd be a lot of attention. And of course, I'm based in Germany, so there's been a lot of attention here. But we've even got him on a, on a flight tracker to see where he pops up. Uh, my big question is, will he... Do the Germans want him for some reason? I know he's had issues in the past here. I know, I think um, in 2002 there was a, an issue, but he's been living in London since 2012. Um, yeah, well, I mean, he's he's really been, I think he's been spent a lot of time in London even prior to that. You know, it's been pretty much his home, I think. Um, obviously, someone who, who travels around a lot. Um, and... It remains to be seen, you know, when he will be allowed to um, come back to the to the UK. I would imagine he'd like to come back as soon as he can, because I know, I mean, I do know Boris, and I know he loves it uh, in in London. I'm not saying he doesn't like it in Germany, but he does enjoy it in London and uh, yeah. does some work here. So, you know, interesting to see. It's very early days, um, and I, you know, I there were rumours yesterday that he was leaving um but i think it is actually definitely true this afternoon yeah the home office didn't speak about the british home office didn't speak about his case specifically but they did say basically in a broader sense that this is actually quite common policy for non-british citizens 
uh, as you say, who don't pose a, a threat to any uh, to the public at all, to be allowed to return to their home country. I think it's after six months, and he's been behind bars for eight. Listen, that is perhaps for another time, though, Mike. Let's get into it because I know that both of us are a little pressed for time, and we want to talk about Emiratu Kanu. Uh, first of all, I mean, you've written this book. Uh, let's um, add that to the stream, and it's obviously available in all good bookstores. And as here, we can see the Amazon link to it. The first question I have for you is actually the question that pops up on the screen here regarding Emma. Tell us a little bit about her journey, at least from obscurity to Wimbledon, which is when really she came into the mainstream. Well, I think the, the case with Emma was that um, people who were sort of reasonably plugged into the British game knew that uh, she was an outstanding prospect. Um, there were big things being predicted from her really from about the age of 14 onwards. She actually won her first pro title when she was uh, 15. Um, but a, a sort of conspiracy, I suppose, of her wanting to finish her education pretty much um, and the pandemic arriving in March 2020. And the fact also that she didn't excel particularly well in the junior grand slams um, that was partly because she was often prioritizing her education those kind of things combined meant that she really was totally off the radar when she kind of burst through at, at Wimbledon 2021 um, she's from I, mean, I think it's fairly well documented she's from Kent um, originally um, learned her tennis at the the Bromley Tennis Centre attended uh, a girls grammar school that's very difficult to get into which is a testament to the fact that she's pretty bright mm -hmm. um and yeah the book tells the book really is to tell the story of how she came to win the US Open and about the actual US Open uh, itself i was um by largely favorable circumstances i was actually able to be at flushing meadows to see her right. uh win the title it was bit of luck in a way that I got the clearance required from the US government and I also had renewed my media visa shortly before um, uh, the pandemic so I was in reasonably good shape to go I guess um, anyway the book kind of you know gives some background to how she came up I spoke to a lot of people who are involved in her development and then there's the whole account of that remarkable summer which you know started just before Wimbledon and well it started with her finishing her A-levels really um very quickly she shone at Wimbledon and then sort of retreated into the shadows a bit while she played in America fairly incognito and then of course she you know burst into prominence uh, at the US Open she certainly did. Um, <laughs> let's just talk about her little moment at Wimbledon, though. That's when she sort of came to the prominence for most of us anyway. I think she got to the third or the fourth round there that year um, and, you know, with some sensational tennis. And that's when she certainly came to the British public's, uh, you know, site. We also got the comments from John McEnroe regarding her, her mental and physical state and the connection between the two. Uh, because of course she, she, I think she pulled out sick in the end of, of her match, or, or she certainly had some sickness issues, didn't she, Mike, uh, at that tournament? What did you make of the McEnroe comments? Well, she, she was quite interesting because there was a slight uproar uh, about them, um, predictably on social media. But the following day, she, she pretty much confirmed McEnroe's theory, really, that it had all 
got a bit much for her. I think the key thing there was that she didn't actually walk on court until I think it was just before eight o'clock. And, uh, you know, she really was never used to having to wait. You know, by then there was huge public hype uh, buildup and and hype around that that match. And uh, she was playing. I mean, she hadn't really played under lights, let alone in front of that sort of many people in that feverish atmosphere. And, uh, you know, it probably got on top of her a bit and she sort of confirmed that um, afterwards. So I didn't really personally have a huge problem with uh, uh, with McEnroe and particularly with hindsight because she she didn't really object to that herself. I think Marcus Rashford also expressed similar thoughts in terms of the fact that he had uh, had himself a similar issue in terms of feeling unwell and, and the pressure got to him, I think, when he said he was a junior. Um, the, uh, that is a unique element to tennis because you just don't know when you're going on court. I mean, at least if you're another sports player, you know you're starting at 8 o'clock or 3 o'clock or whatever time, and that's fixed in the diary. But for tennis players, they just have to wait. I mean, the earlier schedule time is announced, but with other matches, undetermined amounts of time, you just don't know. And I've always wondered how that must be really tricky. Well, I think it's the sort of thing that comes with experience. If you're someone like Andy Murray or Novak Djokovic, for example, you've gone through that process probably literally hundreds of times, you know, when to warm up, uh, when to eat, you know, how it particularly suits your body. And at the time, I think that was something complete, complete, well, as a lot of things were that fortnight, it was completely new uh, to Emirata Cano, but you're right. It, tennis is quite different like that. I mean, you compare it to, say, the Open Golf, where Rory McIlroy is given a tee time of 9.52 a.m., and if he's not on the tee at 9.52 a.m., he's he's out. So, uh, you know, they start, tennis actually has a real problem, in my view, with actually starting promptly when they say they're going to start. But if you remember also, there was some controversy that day because all the other women's matches started earlier in the day, and her particular backlog, um, well, A, she was scheduled later than the others. And then I think it was uh, Felix Auger, Aliasim and Alex Verev had a very long five-setter in the match before her. So, okay. you know, it was it was a kind of confluence of circumstances, I suppose. I can see one or two questions uh, flying in for you already, Mike. We'll address them at the end of the show. So audience, be patient. We will get to your questions. But, but first of all, let's talk about that US Open run. As you say, the book kind of does focus uh, far more on that and the, obviously the build-up to it. Of course, she came through the qualifiers without dropping a set. Um, and then, of course, she actually went on to win the title without dropping a set. Tell us a bit about that journey and, and how it's documented in the book. Uh, well, it was 10 matches, uh, and as you say, um, with, with, without dropping a set. I wasn't actually there for the, the qualifying, although I did um, I did watch it. Um, and she just gained m- more and more momentum, and uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but the stars definitely did uh, align for her. I think, as I say in the book, the kind of performance that really made you sit upright was the third round when she played uh, Sarah um, Cerebes Tormo of Spain, when she just, uh, Emma just absolutely mashed her. And um, I mean, she was lucky to win a game, this really very uh, decent Spanish player who gets an awful lot of balls back. And, uh, you know, Emma just completely um, beat her to a pulp, really. And then you thought, blimey, something, you know, 
quite special could happen here. And then going into the second week, uh, second week of the main tournament, obviously she played the three qualifying matches before. In fact, arguably her toughest match of the tournament was the second round qualifying against a Georgian player. But anyway, once I think she'd, she'd put in that performance, you know, her confidence was sky high. And I think the the more senior players that she then faced in the second week up until the final found it really quite intimidating playing her. And it kind of came across that way. But all credit to Emma, she seized the hour. And um, uh, there's no arguing really with someone who wins a Grand Slam without dropping a set. Right. I mean, as you said, you were fortunate enough to go there for the final. You know, there was a huge amount of media attention in the UK on her and on the match. I believe Terrestrial TV got the rights. All of a sudden, I think Channel 4 was was airing it. You know, journalists like yourself from the UK, no doubt, were flocking out there. Uh, I think Virginia Wade flew in for the final. Am I right on that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's not, not totally correct um, because they're actually, I mean, I, I was there from earlier in the tournament. Okay. Um, but in fact, there were very few media there because numbers were very restricted. And, you know, going back in time, um, it was it was difficult to get into the US um, that time. So, in fact, uh, and this pro- you know, perhaps was a helpful thing for her that you know, there wasn't a massive media scrum because there simply weren't many people from the media uh, there. There weren't even that many Americans, if my memory serves me uh, correctly. What was the second part of your question? Sorry, Virginia uh, the, Wade was there. Oh, uh, Virginia, yeah, Virginia. She knows because Virginia's lived in New York for um, uh, oh, going back to the mid eighties, uh, and she, I, I think, Virginia came certainly the whole of the second week. Um, yeah, she was well. As far as I know, she was there certainly for the last kind of eight days. I think. Um, but Virginia, it's not unusual to see her at the US Open because she's actually pretty local. I guess, therefore, the media scrum ensued afterwards because I think there was certainly a lot more British journalists in attendance. I think it was Indian Wells a few weeks later. Um, but the, the, the as you say, probably the media scrum emerged in the wake of her victory, particularly as COVID restrictions relaxed. Tell us about the day. Tell us about the final inside the stadium. I mean, she handled the pressure very well that day. Yeah, well, it was a pretty amazing day anyway. If you've been in New York um, on the anniversary of 9-11, and this was the anniversary of 9 uh, I think it was, it was 20 years to the day. Um, and it's always, a you know, that morning particularly is very, uh, very sober atmosphere around town. And, for example, there's a fire station uh, just a couple of blocks from where my hotel was. Um, and, you know, there was a kind of big service remembrance outside the uh outside the fire station joe biden was in town so quite a few roads were closed so it's a kind of unusual special day anyway the atmosphere was terrific i think there was real interest um in the whole and, and a kind of after such a difficult period for tennis there was real sense of expectation about two young players you know they're both fresh you know, both very attractive personalities um, and people were, were captivated, not just by the story of Radicanu, but also of, of Leila Fernandez, who obviously from just over the border in Canada. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing, it was it was a really amazing day, a great build up. The, the atmosphere 
was was terrific. I mean, it wasn't particularly partial one way or the other. Poss possibly a little bit more in favour of Leila Fernandez, but it it, it really I, there was a sense that after all the kind of struggles of COVID and everything being restricted, you know, this was a, a brilliant thing seeing a full stadium and two players of such promise, you know, who'd made it through to the final. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so now she wins the tournament without dropping a set. Now the expectation comes, and in particular, uh, of course, as we said before, from the British media. Tell me about the reaction in the UK afterwards. Well, I, I wasn't there immediately afterwards. I think I flew home, flew home on the Monday night, pretty exhausted, I have to say. I shifted a enormous word mountain uh, that second week uh, the US Open because there was so much interest. But clearly, I mean, life-changing really doesn't go far enough in, in saying that, you know, she arrived there. She obviously done well at Wimbledon, but nobody expected her to win. And her life has never been the same since and never will be uh, again. Um, it's something that no one can take away from her, whatever happens now. But obviously the switch round was huge and suddenly she's one of the most famous people in the whole country um i i think it was a mistake um i mean it's quite difficult to second guess coaching things but certainly it seemed a mistake to make this very early um decision on andrew richardson who'd coached her at the us open because it it created there was, there was already deafening noise around her and this only kind of created more noise um, and possibly sort of added to the considerable pressure on her. And, um, you know, I guess you'd have to say in the cold light of day, she's yet to play as well since as she did at the US Open. And it's kind of well documented. There have been coaches coming and going. There's been a lot of instability uh, in her setup, which... Um, you know, I, I don't think has, has, has probably helped. Um, so that was kind of, I get, there was a kind of homecoming thing at the LTA, if I recall rightly, about yeah. seven or eight days after she got, uh, after she won, she got back, I think, on the Friday or something. Anyway, it was kind of the next week, I think, at Roehampton, there was a big homecoming event that the BBC covered. Uh, and it was there, actually, that, that the news came out about Andrew Richardson. And, um, you know, it's not been <laughs> not been a particularly smooth ride since. I don't think it was ever going to be under whatever circumstances. Uh, I don't think it would have been a particularly easy ride for her in the wake um, in in the wake of the U.S. Open. Um, and the you know, obviously, the, any mistakes that you do make are, are made very publicly. I think well, this is what I do know, uh, at least to the, to the best of one fact. No, I do know it is that Andrew has remained very tight-lipped in in the 12, 18 months or whatever it is since that US Open win. Um, I think he doesn't want to, you know, get involved in, in, in what's gone on since, which I don't know if that says anything. But I think what does clearly say something is the the, the constant changes in the coaching situation. I hope that that there is some stability, as you suggested, for 2023. But I've also, I know that there has been a suggestion that she wants to have, or her her team, if you like, or the people around her want to have specific coaches, a volleying coach, you know, a, a serve coach. And and so rather than just having one coach like like pretty much every other player on the tour, um, she wants to have a variety of coaches. I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that or or even the the, the ending with, with Andrew. Well, 
Well, it certainly has been the case in the past um, that um, you know they've looked for specific advice for specific shots, and you know, you'd have to say um, whatever they've her and her family have done. You know, it's, she's got a U.S. Open title. I mean, she's still she's seventy six in the world. She finished the year. It's not not an outright disaster by any means. Um, in fact, she. She probably played better on the clay than I was I was expecting. Actually, I thought that could be a really tough learning curve. But uh, she, you know, she won quite a few matches, put up a very good fight when she played Iga Swiatek. Um, cool. But I, I do. It does slightly concern me that you, you you don't you want to be kind of getting an identity into your game and consistency into your game and consistent messages. And I think that is a bit of a a fear among, I mean, speaking to coaches who, you know, people want the best um, for Emma Raducanu. I mean, ultimately, she has to do, I suppose, what she thinks is works for her. But um, you, you, you would worry a bit if, if there are sort of a lot of technical tinkering, a lot of different voices going into her ear. Yeah, definitely. What are your thoughts on her in 2023? I mean, what what are, what could be the goals? What are realistic thoughts regarding next year for Emma? Uh, well, I was discussing this with a few people actually uh, just the other day. It's interesting to kind of project where her ranking ends up. I mean, I think the most important thing for her is is that she gets the physical side right. And I think there are signs that she's going to get a more consistent guiding light on on the kind of getting herself prepared to stand up to the physical rigors of the tour which are considerable that's obviously been a big problem uh, this year so i think that you know if if she stays relatively fit um i do think she's going to improve difficult to say i mean it's difficult to say anything with any uh, assuredness about women's tennis right now it's it's so unpredictable and up in the air a lot of players are very similar standard but I, I would expect her to have I think she'll probably have some good weeks um one or two standout weeks possibly I, I wouldn't be surprised to see her around 30 in the world this time next year um yeah but really what you want to see I guess are you know certainly by Wimbledon you'd want to see st signs of you know, consistent wins week in, week out, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a, a positive win-loss ratio in a year from now would be would be great. Um, I think if she gets goes deep in one or two tournaments, and who knows, maybe even picks up a, a trophy or two, and I'm not necessarily talking about majors. I think, of course, she set the bar pretty high in 2021, which probably skewed our thoughts regarding 2022. You did touch on the issues there. There have been one or two questions coming in regarding the wrist, for example, and I believe that she may well have changed her strings on her racket. As a result, we also had the blisters as well. Uh, Jean as well is asking about, you know, about the physical improvements. Of course, she's still very young. Uh, you did touch on them there, but do you think there are signs of positivity that we are going to see a healthy 2023? Well, I think there are signs, partly because... Yeah, I I do think she's a worker and she's very ambitious. I don't think she's shirking. I don't think that that's been the issue. I think a positive thing has been the involvement of Jez Green, who's a, a highly uh, respected uh, physical trainer. I don't think we should overstate how much time 
he's going to spend with uh, Radicado on the road. I think he will devote some time to her, but he's also tied up with Dominic Team, And uh, I think that that's a positive thing. Um, she may well spend some more time with uh, Will Herbert, the LTA physio who was with her in, in New York. Um, so I, th I think there are, it, it does, there's been a lot to assimilate in the last 14 months uh, for her. And you know, I, I just hope she's learned some of the lessons. Everyone has to learn lessons. Um, you know, doesn't matter which walk of life you're in. You know, hers is a pretty tough public learning curve. Um, and I'm, I'm basically a believer uh, in her potential. I think I don't expect her to win a Grand Slam this year for sure. Um, but I think what we'd all like to see are signs of, of the kind of fluency that emerged at Wimbledon uh, and the US Open. I don't expect it to be week in, week out, her in the semis and finals of events. Uh, but you, but you certainly, you, you're looking for concrete strides from, from the last 12 months. I will just ask one more question before you go. Do you think she should have pursued with Richardson for a bit longer? Well, I, yeah, I think she should have done probably. I mean, it, you know, it's, slightly difficult to, to second guess these things but clearly he did a good job in the, in America when they because they traveled together prior to that as well uh, and I just think strategically it would have been good to have that consistency when there was so much else changing in her life and if it didn't work out within six months and it might not have worked out within six months um, then it would have been you know, then at least there would have been a calmer atmosphere uh, around her. I mean, I, I I do know Andrew Richardson, and he's got a pretty good tennis brain, actually, uh, good work ethic. So, you know, I don't think there could have been any concerns uh, on that front. Um, possibly best better to have engaged him and then see see how it went than create this extra noise. But as I say, I don't think it was ever going to be a particularly easy. Uh, easy, easier. But I think it'd be fascinating to see how it plays out in the next 12 months. Couldn't agree more, Mike. Listen, uh, thank you for stopping by. I've put a link to your book in the description below this video. So uh, make sure you check that out. Um, uh, Tennis is coming home. I want to get the the the, the right just, uh, name for the book again. Uh, when when Tennis Came Home. When tennis Came yeah. Home. I'll be here in front of me again. Yeah, it's a nice one, obviously. I mean, I, uh, I, I just hope it's... it's uh, you know, it's a good primer. Uh, it's obviously not the end of the story, far from it. Um, but it's uh, what I've set out to do is is join the dots. Um, and it's kind of all in one place. Um, and as I say, they'll, I'm sure in future there'll be other books written about it. But I, I hope I've achieved my aim of making this a, a decent and, a, and a, also a fair um, kind of primer about her career. Mike, um, thanks for stopping by. It was uh, great chatting to you for the last half an hour about Emma Raducanu. And as you say, the journey is still at its beginning, if you like. Well, it is. Um, it is early days. I mean, she's only she only turned 20 uh, in November. And we're seeing tennis players' careers extend deep into their 30s now in a way that they never used to. So you're right. Very early days. Thank you very much, Mike. And to the rest of you as well, I'm going to play you out this uh, little video. Um, Mike and I will sail off into the sunset 
Um, but for the rest of you, thanks for joining us today. Make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're new. Hit the notification bell in the corner and get your comments in the section below. Thank you very much, Mike, for coming by today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. enjoyed this video make sure you hit that like button don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis sports social podcast network